I invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians 2, starting at verse 13 tonight. 2 Thessalonians 2, starting at verse 13, through chapter 3, verse 5. Last Sunday evening, we heard Pastor Zach preach a message about the mysterious man of lawlessness. And we'll find a real contrast between the mystery of that passage and the straightforward teaching of the passage that we'll consider tonight. I really love um, my New Testament professor, Dr. Jeff Wyma's title for this section of Second Thessalonians. I just have the, I guess, more bland title of the steadfastness of Christ. But he called this part of Second Thessalonians the slaying of Satan's superman and the sure salvation of the saints. <laughs> Lots of S alliteration happening there in Dr. Wyma's um, title. Um, uh, maybe just filling you in on a little bit of this. Uh, my New Testament professor at Calvin Seminary was certainly one of the top five um, New Testament scholars in the world on these letters of First and Second Thessalonians. He wrote a, um, an epic tome uh, of, a, of a commentary on First and Second Thessalonians. And not only will I refer to it a little bit later in the message, but certainly uh, his teaching directly to me during seminary was extremely helpful. He is a blessing to the Christian Reformed Church in so many ways. And I like that title that he came up with for this section. So um, we had in last week's message, Satan's Superman, um, also called, you would see, the man of lawlessness. If you're looking in the, head, the headings of your few Bibles there. The man of lawlessness is followed after by um, not just judgment, but the passages that follow after it give us hope um, that the saints will not be overcome by Satan in this world. And so that's what we will read about in our text today. It's kind of the, the, the first part of Second Thessalonians 2 is... Um, could be a little bit scary. It need not be that way, but it, it could kind of intimidate us a little bit so we can thank God that what follows after is so assuring to us um, that God would keep us so that we would stand firm. Having already prayed for our understanding of this passage, let's start at 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. Paul writes, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness 
of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, it might not seem like it, but Paul is still teaching here about the end times in this passage. Sometimes we associate the end times with just the previous passage about the man of lawlessness and other prophecies about the world around us. When somebody starts talking about what will happen in the end times, you might kind of expect there to be a negative slant to what that person is about to say. Now, Paul has just written that God would send a powerful delusion among his spiritual enemies, causing them to believe lies about God and to believe lies about the world that he has made. And so, since the time of Christ, this has been happening. These powerful delusions are believed by people sometimes in the institutional church and pulled away from the gospel itself. And the result of, of all these, these powerful delusions and, and wandering away from the gospel will be that all who have not believed the truth but delighted in wickedness will be condemned. That's in the previous passage. And all of this could inspire fear about the future if we just stop there. If our knowledge about the end times is only negative, we could be filled with fear and a, and a desire just to escape. But First and Second Thessalonians are very clearly intended to encourage the church in Thessalonica. Paul and Silas and Timothy wrote these letters to comfort the believers there, to inspire their faith. These people were living in a young church that was was fragile and it was a healthy church in many ways, but was vulnerable. And so the Apostle Paul wasn't just going to write a letter that would scare this vulnerable church into following Christ, but he wants to teach them to trust God, to encourage them, to comfort them that God will be faithful. So Paul's intention here is that the Christian will be prepared and not fearful of what is to come. That a Christian will be ready, as I titled a sermon several weeks ago, that a Christian will expect the unexpected. How can we do that? If we stay rooted in the gospel of Christ. So if an end times prophet that maybe you have listened to, they come across our TV or our social media feed occasionally, I've um, received um, suggested videos to watch from pastor friends and so forth on something that an end times prophet is predicting will happen. If an end times prophet, who are a dime a dozen today, does not use words like comfort and hope and endurance and faith, that is a good sign that that end times prophet is only giving you a part of the Bible's teaching about the last days. In fact, I would even go a step further and say sometimes fear can be used to draw people into following after one of these so-called end times prophets. It happens so much today, and it was even happening in the church in Thessalonica that Paul was writing to. These end times prophets would come with their message of doom and gloom to scare people into following them as kind of the, the savior, the one with the plan. Um, 
Professor Wyma talks about it in this way. Instead of paraphrasing him, I thought I would just share a quote from his great commentary on 2 Thessalonians. He says, Someone has claimed, likely by means of a prophetic utterance, asserting the authority of Paul even, that the day of the Lord had already come. Even though this claim may have seemed obviously false, it nevertheless has caused the young church of Thessalonica already apprehensive about their eschatological fate, meaning what's going to happen in the end times for them, to be scared out of their wits, fearful of whether they would avoid the wrath of God connected with the day of judgment and instead experience salvation. So since it's unlikely that any of us is fearful that the day of the Lord has already come, the the precise fear might be different in our culture today, we might ask, how can we apply this passage to our attitude and beliefs concerning the return of Jesus? What prophetic utterances might cause us anxiety when thinking about the future? It's difficult to make generalizations, but my sense for the spiritual state of Christianity in America is that people are, who know the gospel and who are living in a church are generally um, confident of their salvation in Christ. And that's a good thing. Um, among those who know the, the true gospel of repentance and faith in Jesus, death and resurrection, covering our sin, paying the ransom, purchasing us for God, those who are aware of that, that simple true gospel are generally confident that when you meet the Lord one day, the merits of Christ will be applied to you and you would enter into God's everlasting kingdom. It's my sense, generally, that, that people are confident of that. I hope, at least. But I think the problem that a, a Christian could encounter in our culture today would, would not so much concern our eternal destiny, but, but what our life would like, be like in this world as we await to meet the Lord someday. As I said earlier, if we believe an incomplete gospel where we just have the promise of everlasting life with God after we die, then we fall into the trap of believing that this life will be generally miserable and dangerous and we're just hoping to escape, to get out of here. And here is where Paul's teaching is so helpful in 2 Thessalonians 2 and 3. I, just, I derived the title of my message from the last line of our text. Are we just promised here eking out an existence in the world and hoping for escape into heaven someday? No. Paul says, may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. And then we find all of these encouragements through the passage that we just read. Notice the other words of encouragement and comfort that the Apostle Paul gives in earlier in the passage, saying, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. And so Paul is not just commanding us to stand firm, but describing a good church that will stand firm, holding on to the traditions taught by us, really referring to the Scriptures, by spoken word, meaning by Paul's teaching, or by their letters. And so Paul is saying, not just giving a command, but giving a description of what a good church will be like, even in the last days, which could be difficult. Continuing, Paul says, May our Lord Jesus Christ himself 
Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. So every good work establishes you in Christ. Every good word establishes you more securely in Christ. That as you see, you know, you're doing something good. You're saying something encouraging. You would offer up praise to God saying, I am even more and more assured that I'm firmly established in Christ because you're doing this good thing through me, God. And continuing, Paul says, he will establish you and guard you against the evil one. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Isn't that good news? This theology isn't so much about the world being progressively a better place for a Christian to live or progressively a worse place for a Christian to live. But the teaching here is to stand firm no matter what. So many end times theological systems are focused on will the world be getting progressively better or will it be getting progressively worse before Jesus returns? The teaching of Paul here is to say no matter what, stand firm. Stand firm that God would establish you and guard you against the evil one in sunny days and in difficult days. Consider the steadfastness of Christ, he said. So we can obviously see that Jesus was steadfast during difficult days. That's the, the story of Christ's passion, that he was steadfastly walking to the cross, offering himself up as a sacrifice for our sins, that his life was not taken from him, but that he offered it up, he says in John's Gospel. And so he was steadfast in following uh, the Father's will in difficult times. But we can also see Jesus steadfastly following the way on good days as well. Sometimes we just associate Jesus' own life with constant harassment and, and almost all the, you know, the difficult times that he endured, like temptation in the desert and um, the Via Dolorosa, right? The pathway to the cross. But Jesus went to weddings. Jesus spent time with his disciples. Jesus loved children who would come to him and, and he would hold them. And, and Jesus is following the Father steadfastly on those days as well. So you, sh you should think of every good thing you do, every good thing you think, every good thing you say as evidence that God is holding onto you and working in you, no matter what kind of day it is. I'm always discouraged to hear ministers downplaying the law of God or downplaying this call to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord, not because I want churches to become more legalistic, but if you don't know God's law and if you don't want to follow God's law, your heart will not be um, comforted that you are being established more securely in the gospel because you won't know how to live. And so, uh, think of it um, maybe in this way, that if you don't know the law of God, then you wouldn't know what to look for in your life that God is doing that is good in your life as you're following Christ more fully and faithfully. So withholding from people a proclamation of the law of God, of the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount and Paul's description of the Christian life in Colossians 3, of these, these law passages, if, if 
a minister withholds from people those laws from God, then, then people are also not as aware of what the Christian life will look like when God's Spirit is at work in you. You won't be as firmly established because it'll just kind of be up to you how you would live as a Christian in the world. Churches that are soft on God's law believe they're being gracious, but it's those same churches that are withholding from their people the comfort of seeing evidence that people really believe the gospel and are living like Jesus. Isn't that a, a, a tactic of the devil? That, and I've seen this many times, a minister will say, I don't preach laws because we're just all about grace. And it's even been, you know, something that I've heard encouraged in, in some seminary training, that, that people don't want to come to church and hear laws. They come, you know, weary and burdened by the world and they just need a message of grace. But it, if that's all we look at as believers, we're withholding from people the comfort of knowing what a Christian life will really look like when you're living in God's power. Verses 3 and 4 of our text attribute the Thessalonians' goodness to God, which means that to minimize the call to obedience is to doubt that God will really equip us to live for him. This approach that seems so gracious is actually fearful because it lacks a belief in the transformation that God would do in us. So, 2 Thessalonians 3, 3 through 4, the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one, and we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. And so the Christian doesn't love the law because it gets us into God's favor, but the Christian can love the law because it shows us the way that God is working in us. This is an area of massive confusion in the history of the church. Is, can the law be a good thing for the Christian? Yes. And our Reformed understanding of the law it's where we find instructions for how to show gratitude to God for the salvation that he's given us in Christ. So while some teachers might have good intentions for preaching only grace and downplaying the law, the impact of that message will not be more comfort and encouragement, but actually less comfort and encouragement as people are sort of left out in the cold or confused about what actually a Christian life will look like. People will lack assurance because they won't really know if they're living on God's way or not. So put another way, Paul is teaching here that although the world is against God and his kingdom, that God will overcome the world, not just through Christ at the last day, but that God is overcoming the world through the obedience of us, his people, who stand firm and are established in the truth. At the end of um, the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul gives kind of an amazing um, prediction for what would happen in the Roman church. There's a little phrase at the end of Romans that has stuck in my mind ever since I preached it, where Paul says, surely Christ will soon Crush Satan under your feet. So what does that look like? It means the people of God in Rome or in Ripon, established in the truth, being born again in Christ, regenerate by the Holy Spirit, are overcoming the world 
on good days and bad days by following the law of God. And that God is doing this amazingly through regular people like you and me. Of course, the victory belongs to Christ. It's through Christ that we become more than conquerors of all these things. And yet, amazingly, God chooses to overcome the world through people born again in Ripon, California. So I hope you'll allow me maybe a personal example as I start to close where this doctrine of God working in me has given me comfort and encouragement. It's common for me to say to Pam on a Saturday evening or a Sunday morning, I think I feel a migraine coming on and I don't feel as well as I wish I did. I don't feel physically like I'm going to be able to do as good of a job as I hope I can do. And even today you can tell I have a cold and I've had one for a couple days. And so my frail physical state (laughs) uh, causing me some concern at times as a pastor. And so my prayer is that I would be able to preach, that I would be able to teach, that I would be able to lead worship and teach a catechism class. And in these scenarios, uh, the best case scenario, I'm I'm praying that I I just want to serve the Lord as he calls me to today. I recognize that maybe part of my motive also could be fear that if I, if it becomes a regular occurrence that I get migraines on Sundays, well then that becomes kind of a problem for me and my work as a pastor, doesn't it? So it could be some fear attached to that if I'm going to be honest. And so every week as I walk home from church, at night it's in the dark and in the morning it's, you know, um, on beautiful sunny days so often here in Ripon. When I'm walking home from church between here and about three doors down there on Sun Valley Court, the thought is going through my mind, God did it again. He helped me to do my job. He answered my prayer that I could go and share God's word. And so this moment of weakness, of feeling like I'm getting a migraine, which rarely comes to... uh, to fruition, sometimes does, but it's been rarer lately, I think. This moment of weakness, God carries me through, establishes me, guarding me against the evil one, comforting and establishing me in every good work and word. That moment of weakness, God would carry me through, and, and sometimes I even say it out loud as I'm walking home. Thank you, God, you did it again. You helped me to just do my work to try to bless the church. The Lord is faithful, is what this passage said. The Lord is faithful to enable me and you to do the things that he has commanded us to do. And Paul's promise in 2 Thessalonians is is not that life will be easy. It's not that I won't get any more migraines. But neither is Paul painting a picture of doom and gloom as we await for the return of Jesus. He wants us to be hopeful, to persevere, to be steadfast no matter what. That you can live in the steadfastness of Christ. That you who are born again will live more and more like Christ as I taught this morning in the message. And all of this is confirmed so powerfully in Part 5 of the Canons of Dort, this great confession of faith that we hold to as a church. These are the closing words of my message tonight. Part 5, Article 14, teaching the doctrine of 
the perseverance of the saints. I love this doctrine. Love this doctrine. Every Christian should love hearing these words. And just as it has pleased God to begin this work of grace in us by the proclamation of the gospel, so God preserves, continues, and completes this work by the hearing and reading of the gospel, by meditation on it, by its exhortations, threats, and promises, and also by use of the sacraments. So this is teaching that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to what? Completion at the day of Christ. Amen. Let's pray.